Today, uh, we'll be reading Mark uh, 5. I'll be reading verses 21 through 28. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jimmy by name. That's paraphrased. Your Bible won't read like that. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Church, you may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, It is so good for us to be together. Um, For those of you I have not met, my name is Brian Carroll. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer, and uh, we're just, we're glad you're here. Um, It's it's a, uh, the gathering is just always a sweet place because I imagine um, a lot of us are coming into this room with different experiences. Um, Some of y'all have had really good weeks, and it's just been a lot of fun, a lot to celebrate. Um, Some of y'all might be coming in uh, feeling a little bit beat up. Um, life's been hard this week, uh, whether with family or with work or just pressures from life. Um, I get it. I get it. Life can be cruel. Um, and so there's probably a spectrum uh, of, of us, uh, of how we feel as we come into this room this morning. But I think when it's, one of the things that is in, important for us, I think, to realize and understand as a church um, is that um, in order for us to, to really um, be honest with ourselves, um, be honest with our moment, whether we're coming in uh, on cloud nine or whether it's been a, uh, uh, one heck of a week, is that it is incredibly honest if we understand just how helpless we really are. Welcome to church. Um, it, it is incredibly important for us to understand that we... Uh, are, are incredibly, incredibly needy people. And life will constantly remind us of that, won't it? Life will constantly remind us of just how helpless and needy we actually are. And I think it's really easy for us in our, in our American culture to look at people's social media or just look at people from the outside looking in and be like, man, they have their life put together. It seems like everybody on Instagram has their life put together, or Facebook, or Xanga, whichever one is your preference. Anyone remember Xanga? Okay, where, where, where am I? Uh, anyways, um, right, but it's so easy for, for us to look at other people's lives, whatever, however you're looking, and we have this illusion that, man, they've got it together. Or sometimes we feel like we have to put that illusion towards others that, hey, I have to have my act together. I have to show others that I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about, that I am capable. Uh, It's so easy for us to get into this mindset uh, of just perceived um, adequacy. But the reality is, whether we're honest or not, the current state of each one of us in here 
uh, is a sense that we have great need and that we are daily met with reminders of our helplessness. Some of y'all I know in this room have experienced uh, sickness and there's nothing that you can do on your own to, to bring healing. As we think about the loss of loved ones, we, we can't not uh, be affected by that. And we wish we could take pain away. We wish we could help. We wish we could bring healing, but we, on, in our own, we can't. You ever feel stuck in a situation or a circumstance and there's no way out? Do you ever try to give advice to somebody and, and, and try to guide someone you love and they're just not going to listen? I mean, we could go on and on, but we are honestly always met with circumstances that are always going to remind us that we are needy. And realizing this doesn't mean that we take a passive approach to life and we don't do anything and we just sit back. But what it does is if we're honest with ourselves, it it does help us realize um, that there is so much we just cannot control. Or another way to phrase it is that we are a people of great need. We are people of of great need. And if we're even more honest with ourselves, um, in those moments um, that seem too difficult, seem too impossible, um, isn't it easy for us to to naturally feel defeated? Or naturally feel um, that, like, I know I serve a big God, but even this seems way too big. Mark 5 is all of this. Mark 5, as Ryan talked about last week, a man who is possessed by a demon, we see that Jesus had power even over that dark, spiritual dark force. And Mark 5 is going to continue this theme that ultimately Jesus is able to do so much more than we can think. He is able to meet us in our helplessness. And really, as we think about us being a people who are, have great need, Jesus is the kind of God and the kind of Savior who wants our need. And so Mark 5, up until this point in Mark, um, Jesus has been, the last few weeks, Jesus has been revealing more about who he is. He's, he's, he's confronting people's false beliefs about who he might be, and he's proclaiming and he's telling the world who he is and that ultimately we have to believe him on his terms. Right? We, cannot ha- we don't have the luxury to take parts of Jesus that we want and then reject others. He has not left us with that uh, choice. We see that in Mark. And so up until this point in Mark, he's showing himself who he is. And we're beginning to see in chapter 5 is that, that that revealing of who he is is having to begin and shift to actually trusting in who he is. Actually trusting in who he is. And what, we get, what we're going to see in Mark 5 is two parallel healings. We see two parallel healings that are communicating the exact same thing. Is that Jesus is able. Jesus is able. And so uh, what we see in Mark at the beginning of this, as um, this so he, they just left um, the, the land of the Gentiles where he healed the demoniac. They go across the sea. They probably land in Capernaum, uh, Jesus and his disciples. And immediately, as they hit the shore, a huge crowd comes around them. So he's probably uh, teaching something. Um, We're not quite sure why a huge crowd, but in the midst of the crowd became this uh, synagogue ruler. Now, a synagogue ruler, um, this was a position who was more of an administrator. Um, They took care of the the synagogue. They took care of all the operational 
things that it took to order for the synagogue to function. It was actually a very prestigious role. But what we see in the midst of this huge crowd, this man cries for help. Uh, his name is Jairus, or it's Jimmy, as Joel said. Um, we see this man with this need because he talks about his daughter is on the verge of death. He's, he's, she's on the verge of death. And so Jesus, he hears the need. The crowd is aware of the situation. They're like, oh man, what's going to happen here? And so all of a sudden, Jesus the disciples, and this massive crowd uh, just head to this man's house. But feel the urgency of the moment, right? His daughter is on the verge of death. He's desperate. And what does he do but just go to the one who he thinks can help? I say, he, he, we don't know exactly Jairus' relationship with Jesus at the time. We don't know if he's just heard about him, if there's been any kind of communication. We don't really know, but he knew something to where he, this man could, was able to help. But this is a very urgent moment because of, her, of his daughter's condition. And what does he say? He says, lay hands on her and she will be healed. She will be healed. So then along the way, um, as they're on the way to this man's house, we're introduced to a, another person in the story, this woman um, who has suffered uh, this internal bleeding for over 12 years. And the thing is, her pain goes beyond just physical. She certainly had physical pain for over a decade, but also she also had probably relational and societal pain as well because she was in a constant state of uncleanness. According to the Mosaic law, she would have been seen as an outcast. She would have been seen as someone to reject, to stay far away from. She would have been a person to fear because if I get too close, I myself am going to become unclean. She was a person who was probably rejected. Can you imagine the loneliness that she felt? And you see the text says that she tried everything. And in fact, we see that she, it says that she, was, uh, she looked to a lot of different doctors and physicians. And she, it, the text is that, that she suffered under them. So meaning she was probably taken advantage of. She was probably conned in a lot of ways. So the suffering of this woman was great. Uh, and we see that she tried everything. Just like the man who was trying to see his daughter healed, she too was in a state of desperation. And what do we see she says? If I just touch his garments, I will be made well. So what's interesting, what we notice about both of these stories so far is that both involved Jesus' physical touch. Both had this perception, if I just touch, or if he just touches, then we will be made well. Both displayed an aspect of faith in Jesus. Both showed his, that, hey, but there was belief that Jesus was able to do something to help. But both of their faith needed to grow. And there was a little bit of incomplete and a little bit of, of misconception that both of them probably had. And touch was the only thing they probably knew that, that he, Jesus could do. Both, but say they had belief in Jesus, but there was still something missing. There were still, there were still some, some, some gaps that needed to be filled in. Think for, for Jarius, though, for the moment. The faith that he displayed, you know, he's working closely with Pharisees. What we know about Pharisees and Jesus is that they did not really get along, right? They, they weren't friends. The Pharisees were constantly trying to undermine his authority and eventually tried to kill him. 
Uh, and so you can imagine this man who works closely with Pharisees in the synagogue going to Jesus. You can imagine the fear that he probably had felt, right? And then the woman um, that, that is approaching Jesus, she probably had a lot of, uh, just because of that region, she probably had a lot of mystical, uh, superstition, uh, pagan-type beliefs that were coinciding with her seeing of Jesus and his ability of what he could do for her. So there's this mixture uh, of her faith with superstition and Jesus. So we see that both had faith in Jesus, but yet there was something incomplete. But what do we see Jesus do to both? Does he wait for them to get it right? Does he wait for them, okay, fix your theology first, and then I'll step in. He steps in. He engages, um, he engages with the moment that they were in. He engages and steps in and, 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 and doesn't wait for them to get it right. Because eventually he knew if he was going to step into their space, that they would be able to see him more clearly. They would be able to understand who he really was. But what we see is that the love of Jesus, he was able to engage and meet them in their moment because what they both displayed, Jairus and this woman, that they had a great need and they were unable to help themselves, that they were helpless, which brings us an important thing for us to think about as well. Do we understand our own need? Or how do we have, are we hesitant to bring our own need to Jesus? And there's a lot of reasons for this. Some of us, we are hesitant to bring a need to our needs to Jesus because we are clothed with guilt and shame. We know our brokenness. We know our sin. We know how, like we, we've, how we've blown it. And so we have this perception that, you know what, in order for me to get to Jesus, I've got to clean myself up or I'm not worthy or valuable to go to Jesus. And so a lot of times we don't bring our needs to him because we don't think we're valuable or we are clothed in guilt and shame. And what kind of coincides with that as well is this sense of like, you know, if I can just behave right, if I can just orient a few things in my life right first, if I can just kind of fix myself and clean myself, then I can go to Jesus. Both of these, regardless if it's an angle of shame and guilt or pride, is, is this sense of a lot of times the reasons why we don't go to him, these feelings. Or if we're honest, sometimes things just feel a little bit too practical and innocuous. This is me, right? We think about, uh, if I'm honest, you know, what are the natural things that are part of our life? You know, our jobs, our families, picking up kids from school, meals, medical bills, mortgages, all the innocuous, boring, ordinary things. And how easy is it for us just to see those as just that? And these are just the daily normal things that are part of life. But yet within those, those are needs. Why is it important for us to even think about these things as we think about our need and bring them to Jesus? Because if we believe he's sovereign over all of life, then we believe he's sovereign even among the ordinary things. And so it's easy for us to not bring these things to him because they feel too ordinary. But the, even in those spaces, there's a lot of need. But if, if and for some, we don't bring our need uh, because, man, we don't know, we, like the situation just seems too big. So we don't really know if Jesus can help. Or if we're just really, really honest, um, we don't think we have need. We can compare ourselves and our lives to other people around us and be like, well, I am doing way better than that person. And because of that, what easily can seep in very sneakily, very subtly, 
is this sense of, I really don't have a need. I am, have enough within myself. I am, I've got all I need, so I don't really need Jesus. Won't phrase it that way, but the posture of our hearts can easily trend that way. So, but here's the thing. What we see in this text is that we see two people that realized their need, didn't have some gaps that needed to be filled on, on who Jesus was. But what Jesus does is that he, he, what he loves about both of these people is that they understood that they were helpless on their own and that they needed his help. And so this is an important for us thing for us to understand as well, that Jesus uh, wants us to understand our own need. And regardless of where we might be in our current life's moment, he is willing to step in and engage into that space. He will step in and engage in that current moment. He wants our need. But what does he do with it? What does he do with our need? I think the text shows a couple of things. First off, when we understand our need and we realize our own need, he uses it to help us know him more. He uses it to reveal more of himself. So as Jesus and the mass of people are heading to Jairus's house, uh, it's, on the way, that it's on the way to his house that the woman with the bleeding is introduced. Um, we, we talked about her internal dialogue a little bit, that she was like, hey, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And so we see in verse 28 that she touches and, and, and immediately she experiences freedom. Immediately she experiences healing. Immediately she's, she understands like her body, something's changing. Because you can imagine the excitement in that. Can you imagine all of a sudden how the implications of this healing could mean for her life? You see all these things happen. But at the same moment, Jesus, Jesus notices something and he, you see him say, that power has gone from me. And you see this kind of comical exchange with him and his disciples. Jesus goes, who touched me? And, and, G, and the disciples are like looking around like, like this, like with next to people, like all around. And they're like, Jesus, we are surrounded by people. Everybody's touching you, right? It's kind of this funny scene, but he said, you see that Jesus says, I've noticed, noticed that power went from me. And so Jesus wasn't confused. He's not asking this because he's confused. Uh, he's, not, he's unaware but what he is doing in this moment um, is that he could sense what the father was doing because he had perfect unity with the father and he, had a, he would perfectly follow the spirit. And he, what he could, the reason he asked this question is because he wanted the woman to reveal herself. He, want, he wanted this woman to reveal himself. So it's one thing for Jesus to heal this woman and to, to, to help her physically, but it wouldn't have been as loving just to leave it at that. Because what might have happened to this woman had Jesus not called her out, called her to come forward? She would have she been physically healed, but still spiritually dead, which was her greater need than her physical healing. She would have gone and still believed falsely about Jesus, that it was this, Jesus' cloak had these magical powers, and because of these magical powers and this mysticism and this, these pagan-like beliefs that were intertwined with how she lived, she would have gone on believing falsely about, her, about Jesus. And that's not what Jesus wanted for her because he loved her. So Jesus' question gets her to come forward. The text says she confesses everything, the whole truth. Can you imagine the whole truth of 12 years of trying to fix your life and, be, and failing the potential shame and guilt that could arise, but she confesses all of it. What does Jesus do? He says, daughter, stop right there. 
a term of endearment and love that this woman probably had not heard for 12 years. Daughter, you're not, a, you're not rejected. You're not unclean. You're a daughter. This term of love and endearment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Jesus wants her, wanted her to understand that it wasn't her superstition that saved her. It wasn't her, this mystical belief. It wasn't his, even his garment, but rather it was her faith in him. It was her faith in him that brought this healing and wholeness that she needed. And what's interesting, that word made well, that word healing does not just speak to um, this physical healing, though she did experience that. But the word itself, it also has this implication of salvific healing as well. She was able to gain something for her soul that was ultimately going to bring about her own redemption and restoration in Jesus. Her confession um, exposed her false belief, exposed what was wrong. And ultimately, because she did, because she brought forth her um, everything, her baggage, she experienced a healing her soul that was needed more than what her body needed. She gained Christ. She gained Jesus. And so how did this woman bringing her need to Jesus ultimately lead to her healing? Is because what it did, it put to death false belief and it replaced it with a, her knowing the object of her faith more, which is Jesus. So when we confess our need, bringing her need to Jesus exposed untrue things and was replaced by true things. She gained Jesus. And so, so her biggest need wasn't her bleeding for 12 years. It was that her soul and her sin was still hanging on her, was weighing over. That was what the real issue was needed that needed to be addressed, which is the same for us, which is the same for us. Because the reality is we're just like this woman in that way. We're just as broken. All of us need to be made well. All of us have this brokenness in us because of our own sin. And this is why, again, the comparison game is so dangerous because we can look at one another and be like, well, my sin's not as bad as that person. Um, or maybe go the other way. Man, if I could just be like that person. What the comparison game does, it either uh, minimizes the sin of others or minimizes the sin in you. And the reality is when we do that, we will not see this need that was the same need as this woman in this text. We will not see our need to be made well. And what Mark is doing, he's helping us see uh, that Jesus, he is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is um, the one who came to bring forgiveness of all mankind. And ultimately he is the one who can bring the healing that we really need. He is the one who can deal with our sin. He is the one who forgives us of our sin. And so here's the thing to think about. This isn't necessarily a rule, but just something to, for, to you to consider. If we don't find ourselves often going to Jesus with our needs, whether it's a sin that we need to confess or just things that are going on in our life that seem innocuous and normal. If we don't find ourselves going to him often, we probably will subtly adopt a mindset that I am enough and I don't need Jesus. 
Again, I'm saying this not as a rule, but as just something for you to think about as your own life. If we don't bring things to Jesus often, we will subtly adopt this mindset that what I can do is enough, and I don't really need Jesus. And that compounded over time will lead us to trusting more in ourselves. And when that happens, Jesus will kind of fade into the background and it might just be a nice accessory that's convenient to bring out uh, when needed. And the scary thing, the scary thing is that on the surface, that might work. Your life might seem pretty good. Your life might seem put together. Uh, circumstantially, all your ducks might be in, in the right order. And, and what will happen is over time is that we see Jesus' place in our lives, again, more as just this convenient person we bring out when it's socially uh, convenient and he's not really our Lord. And so we drift. We don't, but when we bring our need to him, when we realize our need, what happens that we actually see and know him more. We'll see him more completely and fully. That's what happened to this woman. She was able to see Jesus more completely and fully because she was honest with where she currently was. She was honest that the depth of her need wasn't just her own, um, her body, the brokenness of her own body, but rather the brokenness of her own soul. Uh, and so when we understand that it's true of us and we bring that to Jesus, we're able to see him more clearly and know him more. Jesus wants our need because he uses it to help us know him more. And the more we see our need, the more we'll go to him. And the more we go to him, the more what? We'll know him. And so we bring our need. And as we bring our need, Jesus helps us understand him. And remember, just as a a side note, um, he's not surprised by what you're bringing. He's not going to be surprised by what you're bringing. Son, daughter, bring it to me. You'll be met with love, grace, and compassion. What, what, is, what does Jesus say, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four? Is that if we bring, if we confess and we bring our needs, uh, we will, be, a, we will get, be given mercy and grace to help us. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. We do not have a harsh savior who when we bring our need to him will make us feel guilt and shame about it, but rather we have one who's able to give us rest even in the midst of the need that we have. And so Jesus wants us to bring our need to him. There's actually freedom in, bring, in understanding our own helplessness, our own sin and our own brokenness. And not only is there freedom in bringing that, but also what Jesus does, we see in this text, is that he, when we bring our need to him, is that he ultimately is going to help us know that he can handle it. He can actually deal with it. Look in verse 35 and 36. So he's just healed this woman. They're on the way to Jairus' house. And he says, Then while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Can you imagine him looking right at this man. Amidst the crowd, the craziness that's going on, he looks at Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. His attention is turned away from the craziness going on. He looks at this man, do not fear, only believe. Why do you think he told him that? 
because he was fearful and he didn't believe. He just heard his daughter died. He just heard that his daughter died. How would we be in that moment? We would be fearful and we would not believe. But the savior of the world directs his attention to this man after he just heals this woman and just says, hey, I got this. And we see Jesus in this moment as he's kind to this man. He's telling him that I am bigger than death. I am bigger than death. And so what you have after that is this kind of wild scene. Uh, so the crowd's following him. Uh, and then after, they, when they get to the man's house, um, Jesus just brings uh, Peter, James, and John, and then the parents. And in the house, you have mourners. So uh, there was a, a custom and ceremony that uh, uh, back then, and, and when someone died, you actually hired professional mourners. That was an occupation you could have, uh, being a professional mourner. But what you see even in this scene is that these mourners, though they were this part of the ceremony, um, really there's not really much sincerity in their mourning. Because when Jesus goes and approaches them and says, hey, she is only sleeping. They go from mourning to laughing. Who does that? Right? Who goes from mourning to laughing if you're genuinely sad about what you're mourning about? And so you see this kind of wild scene. So he tells them to stay stay back. He brings Peter, James, and John and the parents to the room where the girl is. And we see, um, uh, actually, let's look what happens next. Look in verse 40. And they laughed, the mourners did, at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Probably the biggest understatement in all of scripture. Someone just came to life. They were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged, charged them that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. I love that a little detail. She, she, she just literally resurrected. We get from Luke's account that it, 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 it wasn't more resurrection. Um, but, and he says like, hey, she's probably hungry. Give her some food. That is so human. I love that so much, that little detail. But what do we see Jesus do? He does the impossible, right? He raises someone from the dead. And we, again, I think verse 42 is a bit of an understatement. I mean, can you imagine the excitement of, the, of this man, of his family? Can you imagine the disciples that were in the room? They were just like, what just happened? Right? And this is an amazing scene. But Jesus, what we see that Jesus does here is that he is able to even conquer death. His authority extends beyond our greatest enemy, which is death. And he's able to, I mean, really all of Mark 5, you see Jesus' authority all over all of these things that we have no control over. He has authority over demons, as we saw in the first part of this chapter. He has authority over disease, which we see with the woman, and um, he just healed. And we see now he has authority even over death. So we see that Jesus is not inhibited by anything. So he's able to handle whatever need it is that we are in. Now, I think it's important for us to know as we look at a text like this that talks about healing, um, a couple of things. One, we see that this is a text is descriptive, meaning that it's describing and telling us something that happened. 
Um, it's describing the story in the gospel of the, these two parallel healings. The point of the story is not that if you just have enough faith, if you believe just hard enough, then you will be healed. That's not the point of the story because Jairus had disbelief. He was like, there's a reason why Jesus told him, hey, don't, uh, don't fear, only believe, because he felt opposite. What we see is that, because really that, what that is, that's prosperity nonsense, is that if we believe it hard enough, we have enough faith, then Jesus will heal. No, healing is based solely on the grace and mercy and sovereignty of God. It's not based on what we do or what we contribute, but rather it's based on his kindness and love. And here's the tension. We're a church that believes in healings. We're a church that believes in the gifts of the spirit. I have yet to find a scripture that tells me otherwise. But we also understand is that Jesus does heal some and not others. And we don't know why. There is mystery. And I think we're for honest, there's tension in the mystery. That's okay. There's a lot to be tension. But what we understand, what we have to understand is that Jesus is not a formula to be figured out, but a person to know. Because if he's just a formula, then he'll just be a means to some other end. But if he's a person, then he's the point. See the difference? He's not a code to be cracked, but a person to follow. And what we have to understand about Mark 5 is that he wants us to bring our need to him Because when we bring our need to him, he will help us know him more. And the more we know him, the more we can see that he can handle even anything that our our life is facing. He's able to handle, if he's able to conquer death, then he is able to help us in the current moment that we're in. He's able to help us. And here's the thing is, so you think about later, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as he talks about this future hope that we have in Jesus in his return, that he's going to make all things new. Um, he says that death will ultimately be swallowed up. Our greatest thing, the thing that we probably all often fear a lot. He can handle even death. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There will be a day when Christ returns and makes all things new. There will be a day when he will transform our bodies that struggle with sin, that are broken, that get diseases, that hurt. There will be a day when that will be no more. And that is good news. But in the meantime, if we're honest, death still feels like death. Death still stings. Death still feels a a bit like loss, because it is. We still feel the effects of our sin. We still feel the effects of our brokenness. We still feel the effects on this side. And there is going to come a day where Jesus will make all things new and won't feel those things anymore. But as we're in the space of the already and not yet, we still feel it. So what we do in the meantime is that we go to the one who's not surprised by these things that we feel, but he's not surprised by our needs and not even offended by it, but rather able to help us in it. When death feels like death, when sin, we still feel a sting of these things, 
we go to the one who can help us and bring us healing that we really need. Because he's, as he's shown in Mark 5, he's able to handle it. If he can handle death, he can handle our pain. And so how do we engage with our need? Uh, and band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. How do we engage with our need? We just go to him. We believe and go to Jesus. We repent and believe. What's really interesting, um, there's so many more parallels in this chapter that we looked at that I didn't, didn't fully show. But one of the other parables I think is important for us to know is that both Jairus uh, and the woman, when they first encounter Jesus, what do they do? They fall down. They fall down. They take on this humble posture of them recognizing their own need. They take on this posture of them recognizing that they are a people um, who have something going on in their life that they have no control over that they need Jesus for. It's this posture of worship. It's this posture of like, you are able and I am not. And so when we engage Jesus with our need, we fall at him. We take it as humble posture and be like, Jesus, only you can help me in this moment and I cannot. And it's a hard thing to do because whenever we admit helplessness, we're, we're, it's a very vulnerable feeling, is it not? It's very vulnerable to, to, uh, to, to say, I can't do this thing. Isn't it? But when we humble ourselves before him, Jesus, we understand that Jesus is able to meet us in this space and, and heal us and help us. And the healing, again, isn't necessarily that he's fixing our circumstances or he's bringing um, some kind of resolution, but rather what he's doing is he's drawing us to himself. And it's in him we find our real hope and healing. And so if we're honest with our need and where we are and we're, um, and we're able to admit our own weakness, we'll actually find strength. But, but we have to be honest with where we really are. So a couple of questions. Are there spaces in your life that you don't really feel like you need to bring to Jesus? Or is there part of his, your life that he, you, don't, you don't think he really has access to? Um, are you hesitant to bring something to him because you know by doing so, um, that's going to have to expose a whole a lot of other things. You're going to have to deal with a whole lot of hurt and pain. And then all of a sudden you see this thread that's being pulled and these things being exposed that you don't want exposed. There's fear in that. But there's also life in being fully known and still fully loved. Um, or do you see needs in like, as you think about your friends or family, is there ones in your life who are hurt, who are suffering through disease or suffering through, and, and you feel um, like helpless in that? Um, we can able, we're able to bring those things to him, even the doubts that go along with it. See, the healing our souls need um, is ultimately something uh, we get when we go to Jesus and we bring our need to him. And we see that he's able to handle it. He's able to deal with it because we see that he has authority even over death. So what do we do? We ask, we bring, we knock, we knock, we keep going, we keep asking, we keep bringing, we keep repeating, we keep repenting, we keep believing, we keep abiding, we keep knocking, we keep going. Which again, there is no part of your life, if you are a believer in Christ, uh, that is secular. Everything you do is sacred because the spirit is in you. And what would it look like for you to engage your needs in the ordinary spaces too? And what do we also do when we can, with, our, with our needs? We come to the table. We come to the table. Communion is this weekly reminder 
um, of Christ, of our need and Christ's ability to help us. It's this weekly reminder what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he spilled his blood for us on the cross, that he broke his body so that we might ultimately experience the forgiveness of sins, which again was our real biggest need. Forgiveness does not happen when we fix ourselves or try to present ourselves in a way that's better than we really are. Forgiveness happens when we realize that Jesus on the cross did enough for me to receive the restoration I need. And so when we're able to drink the blood and eat the bread, we're reminded that ultimately is his life for mine. And so we come to the table as a way to bring our need to him. And so this is what we confess when we partake. And so just as a reminder, we have a table in the back, two up front. Um, They are gluten-free. But we would also remind you that the table is for the believer in Jesus. And so if you are still exploring Jesus this morning, one, we are glad that you're here. This is a space for you to explore and ask questions. We want you here. But we also know this is a table for those who have put their faith in Jesus. And so we ask you to consider Jesus in this time. Ask yourselves the hard questions. Why not? Or what roadblocks do you have? But we come to the table for those who are believers in Christ reminded that we have a savior who's able to help us in our need. We have a savior who uses our need to actually help us know him more. And the more we know him, the more we'll find our, the life that we really want. And so would you join me this morning at the table?